0: The following audio is via a Skype call. January 1692, and there is trouble in Salem Village. The minister's daughter and niece are exhibiting bizarre behavior. The village doctor says the girls are bewitched, but by whom?
1: gif it's manson mitchell with gary mance and suzanne mitchell a double shot of good conversation with great guests to jumpstart your weekend manson mitchell you're on the air thank you eric kramer hi everybody i'm gary mance i'm suzanne mitchell live together in the same room sharing the same microphone times are good well not 100 good suzanne's working her way through a cold or it's working its way through her maybe is a better way of putting it Thank you for being here to do this. Fresh from Chicago, and you brought something
2: back home, a souvenir. Yes, my imitation of Elmer Fudd today. Waskily <laughs> wabbit. That'd be great for Halloween. You're a head start. That's right. I'm, here I'm way go. ahead of myself. For the for two Halloween. or three
1: kids we get at the, at the door yeah, where we are.
2: Exactly, so, right? You know,
1: <laughs> the median age in Florida for trick-or-treaters is about 67 anyway, so it's Okay. <laughs> If they have the sheet over them and they're moving, it's all good. (laughs) Let's say hello to bad boy Benny Mathers at the board. Benny, good to be working with you again. Always a pleasure to be back and uh, working back with you too. And today we're going to discuss Mm -hmm. a subject that, yes, it's close to Halloween, but the truth is, Suzanne and I went there, and in so doing, I fulfilled a bucket list item for myself that is associated with Halloween, but it's far, far more tragic than trick-or-treating it's something that almost inevitably becomes uh, seasonably discussed but at the same time we're talking about perhaps the darkest chapter in colonial american history and i'm talking about the mass hysteria that led to the salem witch trials suzanne suzanne you and i went to um we went to the we Salem to the Witch Museum. museum. We, we took September,
2: a In September, and we, they were already gearing up for Halloween a month ahead of time. We enjoyed Salem uh, tremendously, and especially the Witch Museum. And I have to say, Gary, it was not what I expected. It was far, far more than what I expected. And you and I got so excited about the museum, we immediately tried to find out who we could contact in order to do this interview this weekend and talk about witches.
1: Talk about witches and not in the Halloweeny way, you know, though there there are overtones of that when you visit Salem, which is a gorgeous city there. It's one of those landmark places in New England in the, in the colony of Massachusetts. And yes, it's, it's a, a wonderful and inspiring place to visit, but there is the weight of tragedy there as well. And when you learn the history of the Salem witch trials and the mass hysteria that led to it, you really become aware of how fragile human existence is and the fragility of the human mind. Strength of spirit, perhaps, but fragile minds can do great, great harm. We are very fortunate today to have a lady named Rachel Christ. She is the education director at the Salem Witch Museum. We didn't have the pleasure, Suzanne, of meeting this lady, but we talked to somebody who, who knew a guy who knew her who could help make this happen right, today. Right. And so let's welcome Rachel Christ to the show. Rachel, we're delighted to have you with us today. Are you there, Rachel? Rachel? Interesting, there, Gary.
0: Hmm. Well, let's do this. Let me try her right back. Okay. Okay, okay that thanks.
1: sounds good to me.
2: Usually, it's we're the ones who who fall down and and disappear, but not today. We're, yes. we're well connected with all of our stuff.
1: I remember it was but interesting we, to me we, too. we
2: we saw two things in Salem. We targeted two things: the mm-hmm. House of Seven Gables. Yes. And the Salem Witch Museum. We spent. uh It was the end of our trip. End of our. Uh, two-week vacation to New England, and that was the last thing we did before we uh, left the next day.
1: Yes, and then as far as the House of Seven Gables goes, I mean, that was Nathaniel Hawthorne's home. He wasn't the first person to own and live there. He spent his youth there, and um, I don't know if he was the last owner of it before he died or not. I don't remember all those details. But His cousin owned it. His cousin owned it. And right.
2: this, but he, she wanted him to write a story about the house um, because she part of her house had some retail things for sale. And so uh, he went ahead and used her house as the setting for the House of Seven Gables.
1: And back then, if you wanted to buy something, you went out to the big open market. That was their version of the big box store.
2: Oh, there you go. I have her back. Great.
1: Very hey. good. Back hey. to the witches. Back Hello. To the witches. <laughs> Hello, Rachel. Not that we're back. calling Rachel a witch, but she's yeah. ex- an expert <laughs> on the Salem Witch Trial. Witch expert, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> a witch expert and director of education at the Salem Witch Museum. Rachel, uh, I think th- the best thing to do is for us to begin at the beginning and go as far as this hour will take us. And that is to let you know that we went there. We would go again. I would hope to introduce friends to it. And we're hoping to get people turned on to the idea if they're traveling to New England to make sure to go to Salem and to the Salem Witch Museum. Because because it's a richly rewarding experience going back into colonial history and then looking forward to the idea of witches and witchcraft and persecution and accusation and the effect of mass hysteria. But you tell the story better than I can. So when we come to the Salem witch trials and the hysteria that preceded it in colonial America, where does the story start for you?
3: Well, that's a great question. So, um, interestingly, Salem's actually at the very end of the witch hunting period. So in order to really understand why Salem happens, you have to go back um, hundreds of years. So, um, I mean, the very short version is the belief in witchcraft really starts in Europe in the 1400s. And there's a lot of things that go into this belief um, a couple of just you know very quickly is there are certain changes that are going on um, in the religious elites' thinking? They're starting to think about this new group of heretics um, and this characteristics of this group. Um, so this group has the ability to make a pact with the devil in return for magic powers and they're flying to and from these meetings with the devil and because they are getting these magic powers they have the ability to bring hailstorms and control the weather and all of these fanciful ideas which obviously are not based in reality no one was actually doing this but these are the ideas that are starting to be kind of discussed by the upper elite Um, And as these things go, they start at the top and they trickle on down to the bottom until you've got everybody starting to talk about these people who supposedly can do all of these um, horrifying things. And this is happening, as I said, right around the 1400s, which coincides with the printing press. Being invented, So suddenly you can start spreading information on a much larger scale, and that leads to these mass witch hunts that are taking place. Primarily the huge witch hunts take place in the mid-1500s. Um, and they're taking place all across Europe. The biggest ones take place in Germany, what is now Germany at the time is the Holy Roman Empire. Um, so by the time you get to 1692, witch hunts are actually starting to wind down in Europe. They're still taking place, but on a um you know as i said a smaller scale and which comes um, come to an end in um, around the 1750s is when they really start to decline and then end
2: Rachel <clears throat> i get the sense and i and i believe it's in the museum but you know correct me if i'm wrong that the idea of witches was really just to scapegoat a group of people when things aren't going as well as you might like. Like, who's at fault? Who's to blame for this? And it seems as though, um, and and interestingly enough, the role of midwives was that even midwives were suspected of being witches because they used natural herbs and remedies to help a woman through her pregnancy. But um, is is the idea with religion and witchcraft in Europe is that they just wanted to blame a group of people for things that that were going wrong at that time.
3: So yes and no. Um, it's not that it was you know like a conspiracy of all right we've got this idea now let's get rid of all these people we don't like you know this is all very subconscious. So um, we talk about in our museum this idea of a scapegoat. And a scapegoat being a person or a group of people who become unfairly or irrationally the object of blame. And that tends to happen during times of very intense fear. And Europe was kind of ripe for this scapegoating situation during the early modern period because there's a lot of things that are stressing the society. Um so to, again, just name a few. You know, the black plague has just come to an end by the or you know, come to reached its peak by this point. Um, And when the Black Plague swept across Europe, a third of Europe's population had died. So by the time you get to the early modern period, there's still outbreaks of plague, and people are living with this incredible trauma of um, having these um, huge outbreaks of disease. And, you know, we can just imagine how terrifying and how powerless that would make you feel. And then on top of that, this is the time of the Protestant Reformation and the Catholic counter reformation So these huge religious wars that are getting very bloody and very violent. This is also a time of something called the Little Ice Age. So there are very irregular weather patterns taking place across Europe that are causing widespread famines, and people are starving to death, and there are very, very cold winters and very hot summers. And again, this powerlessness, this what what is happening, what can we do? So this combined with these new ideas about these people who supposedly have the power to do X, Y, and Z creates this environment where people are looking around and they're thinking, hmm, Maybe all of these problems, all of my problems, are the result of a witch being in our community. And that's where this idea of a scapegoat comes in, because then you start looking at people who are not witches. You know, no one at this time is really, you know, at least we don't have evidence to suggest making a pact with the devil in return for magic powers. You know, no one's actually a witch. Um, These are innocent people who, um, you know, your neighbors and your friends and the people around you kind of turn on and say, You look like you could be a witch. You're probably (laughs) a witch, you know. And this is that's something that happens in all scapegoating situations is you find the people in the community that make you the most uncomfortable. So the way that tended to play out was, and these are generalizations, you know, every witch hunt has its own specifics and there are always exceptions to the rule, but you tend to see older women being accused of witchcraft, and that usually is because. They don't quite fit into society anymore. They're past their childbearing years. They no longer fit into the role of mother necessarily. Sometimes they're widowed, which means they're living alone without a husband, or um, they've become economically independent and they're living on their own. Huge no-no during this time that when you know society is kind of at its patriarchal height. Um, and then you also have people who have done something taboo, like had a child before marriage, or perhaps had an argument in public. Women yelling, being aggressive, being assertive, huge no-no again at this time, that could make you suspicious. And then as you said, um, people who are still practicing folk magic, they can become suspicious during times um, when witchcraft fears are heightened. So um, that doesn't mean that every midwife was going to get accused of witchcraft, but um, midwives often tended to be skilled in these herbal remedies. So if you're still pr- doing these folk magic traditions that have been posted passed down from generation to generation that could make you susceptible to a witchcraft accusation because if you make a remedy for your neighbor, she takes it home and you know let's say this is a remedy for her daughter, she gives it to her daughter and then her daughter gets worse and dies, you can now accuse that midwife of being a witch and trying to and doing this on purpose. Um and that's really, you know, how things start to escalate and by the time you get to the end of the witch hunting period, You know, these numbers are really hard to know with absolute certainty, but one of the um, approximate estimations is about 45,000 people are executed, Um, a large majority of them, again, being women. Wow.
1: When we go to the Salem Witch Museum, uh, I think of us walking in, we don't know quite what to expect I didn't know whether there were going to be actors there or if we were going to walk around a building where there were artifacts. I wasn't quite sure what to expect. Suzanne didn't know either. And much to our delight and intrigue, we sat down, Rachel, as you know, there on trying to get the best seat. It was a crowd, so we got in there. We were near the back of the line, and we, when we got in, I was looking for the right angle because I didn't want to miss anything there, <laughs> but it was really jammed in there. And still, I, I managed to get a very full representation in, in an interactive way because you have something that, and don't take this the wrong way, Rachel, I mean it as a compliment. The technology. Yeah for me, was worthy of some stage of Disneyfication. (laughs) Where in Disney, they really know how to work the technology with their Imagineers, as they are called. And I saw touches of that in this presentation with the figures there who were interactive with the audience. This was fascinating to me. And yet, it wasn't the Disney of sanitized entertainment. This was raw Puritan history, colonial America, and deep tragedy. Deep injustice, and I I felt that it was handled in a a very even-handed manner. I compliment you and everyone in connection with the Witch Museum for presenting a side of America that we really don't want to think about, but have to if we're going to face our own history squarely.
3: Well, thank you. Um, So I'm I'm always happy to hear positive feedback. You know, as someone who works in the education department here, you know that's always wonderful to hear. Um, so as you said, we have um, kind of a non-traditional museum, and that's oftentimes very confusing to visitors when they first arrive. Because when you hear the word museum, one of the things that first comes to mind is this kind of traditional walk-through galleries where you can see artifacts and paintings and things like that, um, and it's kind of self-guided. And that's that's not what we offer here, and that's not what any museum in Salem that deals with the Salem Witch Trials offers. And Actually, the reason for that is because there really weren't any artifacts left over from this period. The Salem Witch Trials are a really short period of time. In total, they take just about a year if you count, you know, the first accusations and if you count, you know, going through to the last people getting out of jail, it's perhaps a year and a half. But the trials themselves are taking place over just four months. This is a very short period of time. So, you know, nothing was really kept. You know, there are people come in and they expect to see, you know, the shackles and the gallows and the magistrate's robes. And these are just things that, you know, why would they have kept them? You know, it's, it's things we just don't have today. So what we do have are the court documents. So in this case, uh, necessity is, you know, the mother of invention. Um, so we um, do this presentation that's based on court documents. And what our visitors see is they come into this large auditorium and they see these tableaus of the major events of the year 1692, starting at the very beginning and going all the way through that year. And the idea is that as you're sitting there and you're hearing this story, you're looking into these moments. Um, so we do get um, criticism because we're not Disney enough. We get praise because we are you know, kind of a foray into this entertainment side. Um, And it's really, it's always interesting hearing how people react, because it's definitely not a traditional museum setting. But really the idea is to get people thinking about what could lead to a witch hunt, what could lead to neighbors turning on neighbors and friends turning on friends, and how does this spiral out of control? And we hope that having this kind of immersive experience where you're kind of sitting in the middle of these scenes, it kind of takes you to 1692
2: and very successfully, artfully. Oh, yes, yes. It's actually a two-part um, experience because the first is the auditorium where the lights are dimmed and you you see all the various activities surrounding the witch trials, but then you move into another area where there are some things to look at, and one of the most interesting, I thought, was the first edition of The Wizard of Oz yes. because In that, the witch does not have a green face. Doesn't look a thing like Margaret Hamilton.
3: (laughs) Yes, yes. So our second presentation is a little bit more traditional in that it is a guided tour, and we do have some artifacts for visitors to see. They're not artifacts from the Salem Witch Trials, but they are artifacts that relate to the history of witchcraft. And that's because this second presentation, presentation, as you said, is more about the image of a witch and where it came from and how that's then changed and evolved over time. So we were very excited to acquire a first edition of The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, and that was actually added to our permanent collection this year, which was very exciting. Um, And yes, as we're talking about where this stereotype comes from and how it changes, we love having our visitors come and look at what the original Wicked Witch looks like. Because as you said, she actually kind of looks more like a pirate. She doesn't have green skin. She doesn't really look like a witch at all.
2: I thought she her clothes reminded me of clown clothes. Because <laughs> I think, if I remember, it was a combination of polka dots and stripes and plaids. And and uh, she did not have the green face. It was but, a, yeah. a little hat or something. There was a
1: touch yep. of a harlequin.
2: Yeah, or exactly. yeah. It, it seemed more like a harlequin. And not... Um, not evil looking. She mm-hmm. was, uh, it, it was the pose in the picture was, uh, almost dancing.
1: Like a trickster.
2: Yeah. Right, right. Like a trickster. And so that was an eye opener. And I believe if I remember it correctly, it was the director of the film that put a green face on her. And in doing so set The stage for witches to come in the future, and I think that movie was about, what, 39 or so? I believe that was the year. So uh, interesting that the idea of witches having a green face started in 1939, not in the 1400s or 1500s. (laughs) That was a latecomer to witchcraft. It
3: was. It was. And what's interesting is you can see green-skinned women throughout history. You'll see green-skinned goddesses and things like that. But yeah, the first time that it's connected strongly to this witch is 1939, and it's really just because um, they were experimenting with technicolor, and they wanted to use as much of those bright, bright colors as possible.
1: And they did. (laughs) <laughs> In that movie, a, a horse of a different color. That was quite a yep. shock to me the first time I saw it. <laughs> I wanted to get back to this, this. And that part of the tour is really something else to see because there, it's a timeline of history. And you have some models there as you get ready to exit that part of the museum. You see a modern-looking couple. These are pagans. These are stewards of the earth energies, male and female, and they kind of look like you and me if we were into paganism and we dressed the part. And I I just remember standing and kind of staring at that, and I thought people like that would be accepted in many communities or parts of communities. But if you go back long enough, far enough in history, it would be to risk your life to be too public about your own earth-centered religious belief system.
3: Oh, yeah, very much so, especially if we're talking about the period of time when witch trials are happening. Um, you It was very much to risk your life. You know, this is a Christianized Europe we're talking about. So, I mean, there are people who are Jewish and who are uh, Muslim at this time, but that, even that was very dangerous. So worshiping the earth is huge risk, you know. And sometimes you see these kind of Christian-pagan hybrids, that that could, again, get you accused of witchcraft if you're not careful about it.
1: In circling back here, I, I think we'll take our break here in a couple of minutes, but I did want to say that when we, we think in terms of an irrational fear of the other and a fear of the unknown, if you put that into the febrile minds of teenage girls, could be teenage boys in another context, but we're talking about girls here, who are pubescent or post-pubescent. And they begin to entertain these fantastic notions aided by somebody who comes from an indigenous culture that is foreign to where they are, someplace like the Caribbean, for example. There you begin to move from Hearing stories that give you thrills and chills on a cold wintry day in Massachusetts to something that begun, begins to take on a very dire social significance, and I think that's part of the the deep tragedy of this is that an idea took on a life of its own and it circulated like a virus, a virus of the mind. Rachel.
3: Yes, and um, this I'm I'm glad you bring up Tichaba and the role of Tichaba. Who is this? Slave who's living in the home of Reverend Paris, and not to get onto too much of a tangent, but this is actually one of the pieces of our presentation that will be changing for our 50th anniversary, which is in 2022. Um, as this is a piece of scholarship that's been debated a lot, you know, what is her role? Is she telling these stories to these girls that is, um, you know, creating this, um, you know, kind of guilt that leads to them accusing other people of witchcraft. Um, and that's something that historians have debated a lot. And, you know, even if – and she probably wasn't is um, kind of the consensus where we are now. And as you've seen, uh, our, our presentation is a little dated in that, and it will be changing soon. But you, I love that you bring up this idea of these stories because the stories about the devil, the stories about witches – that's circulating all the time, and especially because they're living in this very restrictive puritan minister's house, Samuel Paris, who's a very fire-and-brimstone-esque minister. He's constantly talking about, you know, kind of um, sins and the powers the devil has and all these terrifying, terrifying imagery, and these girls are young. They're, you know, 11 and 8 or 6, I believe, years old. They're very young kids. And, you know, to hear all of this horrifying uh, talk about the devil and what the devil can do and how the devil can come for you, you know, that would scare anyone. So it's kind of natural that this kind of comes out in them as these fears about witchcraft turning into these accusations about witchcraft. And then that takes on a life of its own and it spirals.
1: And it's scary to me to think that prepubescent girls would have that kind of grip, fearful grip, on a whole community.
3: Yep. Yeah, and I mean, it really speaks to the place that the community is in. So another really important part of this story is that Salem is in this huge factional crisis in 1692, where half the town hates Reverend Paris, and half the town loves him, and they can't agree on who should be their minister— Uh, Between the years 1672 and 1692, they've had three other ministers. Samuel Paris is their fourth. So they keep having these people come in. Half the town wants them, half the town doesn't, and they kick them out. And Samuel Paris has now been there. He gets there in 1688. So he's stayed. He's been there for a little while, but this um, debate is raging between the adults. Should he stay? Should he go? And it's turning into this huge fight. So, um, you know, the fact that they start accusing people of witchcraft pretty quickly turns into, you see a lot of social and economic things playing out in these accusations. And that has a lot to do with the fact that kids listen. You know, we sometimes forget that children are very smart. Children are listening to what their parents are saying and they're understanding to a certain degree. So, you know, if you hear that your parents hate Rebecca Nurse for whatever reason because you have these border disputes or territory disputes, or you're on the opposite sides of this minister dispute, and um, these kind of witchcraft accusations are starting, and you start to, um, you know, become frightened, you're then going to say, who do you think is evil? You're going to think the person that your parents think is evil is evil. You know, you're going to regurgitate that back, and that's what you see playing out in these accusations.
1: I think this is a good time to take a break. And, Rachel, when we come back, in addition to providing information about the museum and how to connect online, et cetera, I would love to get into the timeline of the events and the major people, the major names associated with this. It gripped the whole community, but there are standout people, and we've mentioned a few already. And I also want to make time for the tragic story of John Proctor, what an, what an extraordinary, miserable outcome for a man of reason. And it's important that we tell his story along with all of the others. We will make time for that on the other side of this break. You're listening to Manson Mitchell. We're talking with Rachel Christ of the Salem Witch Museum. And we'll have more in just a moment. This is AM 1150
0: Seattle. The preceding audio was via a Skype call. A message sponsored by Heart Valve Voice US. For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org. Talk radio with a purpose. Alternative Talk, 1150.
2: Welcome back to Manson Mitchell and our interview with Rachel Christ of the Salem Witch Museum. If people want to get more information about the museum, maybe they're planning a trip up to New England and would like to uh, go to Salem, what is the website and, and what information will they find, Rachel? So
3: our website is salemwitchmuseum.com. We also have a Facebook page, which is just Salem Witch Museum, and an Instagram, which is also Salem Witch Museum, um, and you will find information about um, how to visit, what our hours are. Um, we have some great educational resources available on our website. We have a self-guided sites tour of Essex County, um, and we have some information about um, our exhibits and what you'll see at the Salem Witch Museum.
1: Beautiful. Thank you. Rachel, I'd like to just begin with Tichiba, who is being reinterpreted in further research for the 50th anniversary. I hope to be there for that. That would be incredible. Tichiba from the West Indies, perhaps Barbados. There is uh, the housekeeper, the slave, and, and in context today, you know, what, as I think about her, and I don't mean any offense uh, uh, by using this term at all, I just think it's it's sort of homespun, when someone does what she did, you could be referred to as a kind of kitchen table psychic. This is telling the stories to young girls. It's at that popular level. And so here's Tichibo working, they're sharing with and entertaining these young girls, they look out their window and they're not seeing too much going on, and so they give flight to their imaginations, and has certainly excited that in them. Who were these young girls, the principals in getting this started? What did they take with them to the town, and what were the manifestations that started all this?
3: And again, this is one of those things that, like I said, we're, we're reinterpreting. So Tichiba telling them these stories is something that's really been debated in the past 20, 30 years of scholarship, and that's something that's um, definitely been um, reinterpreted, that we will reinterpret. It actually seems like she probably—we don't have any necessary evidence. This was um, kind of suppositions that were made by historians to say that she was telling them these stories. But what we do know is that the afflictions start— with two girls, with uh, Abigail Williams, who's 11 years old, and Betty Paris, who is 9 years old. Um, I fumbled with her age earlier. It's 9 years old. <laughs> and they are the two girls who are living in the house of Reverend Samuel Paris. Um, so then, after they start experiencing these afflictions, and this is in January of 1692, so in the dead of winter, um, the afflictions start to spread to essentially their neighbors. So you start to see. Ann Putnam, Jr., who becomes one of the lead accusers. She's 12 years old. And then Mercy Lewis, Mary Walcott, Mary Warren, Elizabeth Hubbard. So these kind of girls who were all, at least at the beginning, living close to one another. Um, So they would have known each other. They would have been friends. Um, and then it starts to expand out as word gets out, and more and more people start to exhibit this very alarming behavior. And what they're claiming is that these specters, these ghosts, essentially, of uh, that witches can send out are tormenting them and hurting them. And this is um, leading to this really terrifying behavior. They're falling to the ground, they're screaming, they're shrieking, they're, um, you know, bleeding, they're producing these bite marks on their arms. And it's, um, you know, to have witnessed something that sounds terrifying.
1: And with that, now the adults get involved and everybody's entitled to their own reaction. But this, the mentality, with few exceptions and one notable one, spreads like a plague plague of the mind and that so you have ministers you have uh, the respectable people of the village who can't understand what is going on but they're familiar with this paradigm of witchcraft and how if someone is bewitched they are of the devil there is a satanic influence here the presence of evil in the community and if it's evil and you're a puritan the evil must be stamped out and with finality that's that's exactly. the message I took from it. It's a whole attitude toward what you perceive to be a kind of black plague of the mind or of the soul.
3: That's exactly it. That's a great way of describing it.
1: And so this minister, the father, you know, what is he going to do about all this? I mean, I would imagine in any situation like that, it isn't long before the accusations are flying and people are being arrested and thrown into these hideous 17th century jails there, where now, what do you do? I mean, what what legal protections would you even have?
3: Yeah, so basically, um, their court system is operating very differently than ours in that you are uh, guilty until proven innocent, whereas obviously now we are innocent until proven guilty. So um, the next kind of phase after the initial afflictions is three people are accused, Tichaba sarah good and sarah osborne and they're kind of like the archetypal um people to be accused of witchcraft so tituba is a slave she is we don't know where she's from it's thought maybe barbados um but she was black so um she has dark skin which you know right off the bat makes her very suspicious to 17th century colonial settlers um and then sarah good is a beggar who is known to have been um Kind of crude, kind of aggressive. She would go house to house asking for, um, you know, charity. And if she wasn't given what she believed she deserved, she would mutter and she would curse at you. And then Sarah Osborne had scandalized the neighborhood by, um, when she was widowed, marrying her servant. And then on top of that, also hadn't been to church for months because she'd been ill. So these three women are all, like we talked about, great scapegoats. So they're brought in, they're tried, Sarah Good and Sarah Osborne maintain their innocence, but then Titcheva is the one who says, "Um, yes, I am a witch, you've got me. There are others, there are, um, you know, five, six, ten other people who are also witches that I've been working with. And she probably does that because it's thought she was beaten. She's terrified. You know, she has no one to protect her. She's a slave. She knows that she's not getting out of this, um, you know, without, you know, she's not getting out of this unscathed. Um, So she just kind of tells the court what she thinks they want to hear, and because now they think, oh my gosh, there's other witches, there's maybe as many as you know, 10 witches in the community, that's what really sparks the panic. So now they're looking for witches, and now all of these age-old disputes and arguments and fears are all getting dredged up. You had a fight with someone 10 years ago about borders or territory or you stole my cow or your cow wandered into my neighborhood – That's what's getting brought up, and this is what is really starting to manifest in these witchcraft accusations.
1: And into this we have, whether suddenly or gradually, a man by the name of John Proctor. And during that tour, Rachel, I have to tell you that I was mesmerized by his story and gripped by the tragedy of it all because I really thought, here is a hopeful note. Here is somebody who is a reasonable man. A practical man, and surely he can find a way through all this. And if not save everyone involved, save himself and take a stand for reason in this dark time. But that's not how it turned out.
3: No, and John Proctor is a great example, and he's also, his story has definitely been made very famous by the Crucible um but i think it is worthy to note that he represents a group of people he is not alone in um you know standing up to the trials and but he, he's a great example you know he really says this is nothing these girls are making it up he um he's not you know an, an amazing guy his solution is he quote unquote beats the devil out of his servant who's an afflicted girl so he beats her until she um, says, you know, I, I was making it up, I'm sorry, and she recants, but then she gets accused of witchcraft. So, uh, But he maintains his innocence the whole time, and all 20 of the people who are executed, 19 are hanged, Giles Corey is pressed to death. They're the ones who refuse to in, you know, implicate themselves, and that's an incredible act of bravery. You know, the people, and this is very counterintuitive, and this is really unique to the Salem witch trials, but the people who survived the trials are the ones who said, yes, I am a witch. You've got me. I'll name names. I'll do what you want. And they survived because they lived in jail until the madness had kind of passed. But the people who said, you are crazy. I am innocent and I will stand. I will go to the grave defending myself as innocent. They're the ones who are hanged. Um, So as I said, John Proctor's famous for it, but they're all 20 of them are really these kind of amazing people who even if you know they were problematic in whatever their individual ways they're the ones who said i will not you know implicate myself i think you are crazy and this is madness
1: tell us the story of the man who was pressed to death now, this is some creative punishment you talk about coercion <laughs> this would be an ultimate example i recall from the two or taking the tour that when this john and his name again is what now Giles Corey. Giles Corey. Okay, yes. Mr. Corey, there was uh, not the confessing type. In fact, he, <laughs> he had. Uh, it seems to me that he had a uh, gene for defiance, shall we say. He knew who he was, and yeah, if it were a crime, I mean, isn't it? Wouldn't he be a candidate for plea bargaining? Because it's not like he was unfamiliar with that which he was accused
3: of doing. So this is, again, kind of a a 17th century law 101. And Giles Corey's a really unique case. So essentially, he's brought into court um, very late into the trials. And by this time, there had been several days of execution. People had been hanged as witches. And he had seen the pattern of the people who were maintaining their innocence were the ones who were being executed and the people who were, um, you know, uh, pleading guilty and indicting themselves, they were the ones who were living. And he basically saw this as what it was, a corrupted court. So he refuses to comply with the court. So at this time, there's essentially this protocol that's supposed to be observed, where uh, when someone was brought into a trial, you were asked, uh, how will you be tried? And you were supposed to answer, by God and my country. And 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 then the trial could proceed. But Giles Corey is brought in and they say, how will you be tried? And he refused to answer. And technically the court could not proceed. And this was something called standing mute. And it was, you know, an option during this time. So this basically halts his trial. But because things are so intense and because the court is already feeling pressure, they know that they're becoming, um, you know, they're losing favor in the public eye. They know that, um, you know, the, hysteria has just mounted to such an intense degree that people standing up against them could be, um, could be huge, could be terrible for them. Um, they decide to resort to this very unusual method, but a legal method of pressing to death. So this was a uh, medieval punishment. It had never been used in the colonies before. It was never used again after this. Um, That essentially what you would do is you would literally try to press an answer out of someone. So you would take them, lie them down, put heavier and heavier stones on their chest. um, And this was a torture. So you were trying to get them to answer, um, you know, trying to get them to comply with the court. And Giles Corey was 71 years old. He is not a young man. Um, But he does not give in. He lays down. They press him until he dies. He dies that day. Um, and as the story goes, we don't know if this was actually said, but as the legend goes, they asked him, you know, how do you, you know, how do you bleed? And he said, more weight. Then that was the only thing he would say to them in response.
1: More weight. Yep. Yep. I mean, that's I got to say, that's a hard ass right there. Yeah. <laughs> in that circumstance. I mean, they're they're pressing the life right out of you. That is incredible. And the way it's narrated when you take the tour and all that, I mean, you just ask yourself existentially, you know, I'm looking at my fate, my mortality right here and now in in a hideous manner. What do I say? What do I do? And he remained true to himself. That's quite remarkable. It's a kind of martyrdom, even if he's doing it defiantly there. Nonetheless, I mean, this is somebody who was was true to himself, his identity and his sense of right and wrong.
3: Exactly, exactly. And that's what you see playing out in the Salem Witch Trials, and that's why when you really start studying each individual person, you just, it's mind-blowing. It's really, and even the people who pled guilty, who indicted themselves, they a lot of them later um, write these amazing letters explaining why they did it. You know, they were so scared. They were so, um, you know, they felt like they were going to be killed if they didn't. You know, they're, and these people who were being accused, they're teenagers, they're adults too, you know, adults raging all the way up to people in their eighties. But, you know, there are these people at these different stages in their lives and they're just, it's this human terror. Um, And it's really, you know, moving to think about. And, you know, when you're studying this, you'd like to say that I'm the kind of person that would have maintained my innocence, but it really, it makes you ask these questions of yourself of, would you, would you really be able to stand up there and maintain this integrity in yourself? Or would you have complied? You know, it's, it, uh, studying the film Witch Girls really makes you ask, like you said, these huge questions, these existential Absolutely. questions. Well,
2: and, and you know, Rachel, that brings me to the final uh, wall of the museum because there's a nice timeline of when certain things happen. There are uh, you know, some um, witch-related items to look at. There's some dioramas to look at. But one of the things that struck me So much when you're talking about intense fear and human terror. uh, I was very, very surprised at the end of the tour that there is one wall in there that actually brings things up to the 20th century. And that is that, you know, while the Salem witch trials happened in 1692, 300 years later, There are still things going on that create that intense fear, that create that human terror, and we're still trying to accommodate that, and there were a couple things on that wall that really grabbed my uh, attention. One of them that I can remember was the McCarthy trials in the uh, 1950s, do I have that right, Karen? In the 1950s, where... You're talking about your scapegoat again. You're talking about picking on a group of people and blaming them for things. And because of the fear of I'm going to lose my job, I'm going to lose my place in society, I'm going to lose my friends, my family, that there was that compromising going on and putting up with the people who are terrorizing you. And uh, I, I can't remember what else was on the wall, Gary. Do you remember, or we'll ask Rachel. Well, it,
1: well, it had to do with xenophobia as yes. well. This is fear of the strange, the other, the, the sojourner in your midst. There, and you, we've talked a little bit here. We touched on the Crucible, Arthur Miller's immortal play. I think the genius of Arthur Miller, uh, Rachel, was that. He wrote about The Crucible. We all saw it, and and maybe somebody listening here acted in that play. It goes on in high school everywhere, right? It's a standard. The Crucible, oh, it was about the Salem witch trials. Well, yes, it was, and about a lot more at the time that it was on Broadway, when it was published, when people were reading it across the country. Sure, it was about the Salem witch trials as metaphor of a time which was full of hysteria, full of accusation, full of despair. And this was the McCarthyism of the time exactly. so that you could be as talented as could be in Hollywood. And somebody says something about you. I think he's a red. I think he's one of those commies and your life literally could be ruined overnight.
3: Exactly. Yeah. And so I, this is the, the part of our museum that um, I think can be the most emotional um, because it's It's bringing these lessons into the modern day, as you said. So we break this down into a formula, which is fear plus a trigger leads to a scapegoat. Um, And as you said, so one of those examples that we use is McCarthy, which um, I think is very familiar to people because of the popularity of the Crucible, and that's still part of a very standard curriculum. Um, In the United States, at least a lot of people read that play in high school still. Um, The other two examples that we have are the Japanese internment, um during World War II, after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, um, about 100,000 Japanese Americans were forcibly placed into internment camps um, during that time. And um, much like the McCarthy-era trials, you know, these were innocent people. They were not spies. They were just Japanese Americans. Many of them were legal United States citizens, and they're placed into these horrible internment camps where they're forced to stay for the duration of the war. Um, And then the other example that we talk about is the gay community being scapegoated um, when the AIDS epidemic breaks out in the 1980s. Um, Mm -hmm. The term that was really commonly used during that um, time was GRID, uh, which stood for gay-related immune deficiency. So people oftentimes called AIDS uh, gay cancer and things like that. And the gay community was just very susceptible to the disease, but they weren't the ones responsible for the disease. So it's a similar kind of scapegoating if you take that group that is an other for some reason, whether it's because they don't look like you or their sexual orientation is different than yours or they have different political opinions than you. And what ends up happening is you, get a, you fixate in on that group and blame them for something just as a means of feeling like you have control. And this is something that humans do across all time periods, across all geographic regions. It's just something that tends to happen when humans are very afraid. Uh, It's kind of a natural gut reaction. And the only way to prevent things like this from happening in the future is to just continue educating ourselves. So when we find ourselves living in a time of fear and hysteria, hopefully we can learn to recognize those symptoms of a scapegoat. Otherwise, history will just continue repeating itself. And that's what we like to end our presentation with.
2: And that was one of the things that surprised me, Rachel, is that you brought it into today from 300 years ago to today. And when we ended on that, it was I was uh, very much taken aback because it is easy to say, oh, well, you know, back then people were superstitious or back then uh, they weren't as smart or back then and kind of dismissing it. But when you show those those current um, intense fears that people have and, and what the triggers are. For that and how people get blamed in groups it was like oh yeah it happens today exactly
1: and to go back for a moment to we've got about three minutes left when we talk about John Proctor I really hoped that there would be a triumph of reason there because this was a religious man a, and a somewhat earthy man he had his passions but he also never seemed to turn his back on rationality. There was a stubborn, persistent reasonableness to this man. How did he not escape
3: the hangman's noose? Um, so, again, it's that uh, challenging to the court. So the people who maintain their innocence, they're the most dangerous during this time. So, um, you know, the people who tend to be the most rational in outbreaks of hysteria, the ones who call out what is happening, they tend to be the most vulnerable Um, So John Proctor is an example of that. But as I said, the people who, you know, Giles Corey would also be an example of that. Um, Rebecca Nurse, Sarah Good, you know, all of these people who end up standing on the gallows and going to their deaths saying, you people are crazy. I am not a witch and you know it. You know, these are the people who are hanging on to some sort of rationality and that's what makes them dangerous.
1: In the last two minutes, then, let me ask you, Rachel, because it's not attached to the museum there, but the place where the hangings were carried out. Now, it's memorialized now, and I think in recent years they have put together a plaque, and you can go there. We did not go there. I kind of felt bad about that. But on the other hand, I, I didn't want to be around that energy because I was affected by this story. Mm-hmm. But if you go there to the place of hangings, what does it look like today?
3: So it's very We weren't sure, you know, 100% sure where this uh, took place until very recently. There was a project done in 2017 that finally confirmed the location, Uh, and it had been thought for years to be in this proximate area. But this uh, this project that was undertaken by local historians and um, professors at Salem State is what really confirmed it. And it's actually it's in a suburban neighborhood. It's this tiny little patch. Um, There's a beautiful memorial there now, which has the names of the 19 people hanged on that spot. It's surrounded by trees, but it's also, you know, there's a Walgreens just right down the street. There are these residential buildings all around it. Um, It's really not what you would expect.
1: Houses, Walgreens, and history all around.
2: Rachel, thank you so much for sharing about the museum with us today. We loved the museum, and I, I like your explanation about all of it today.
3: Thank you. Thank you so
1: much for having me. We will return, and when we do, we're going to look you up, Rachel. Thanks so much. <laughs> Perfect. Coming up next, Suzanne.
2: Uh, Christy Nup Church, followed by the Susan Harmon experience, and then that nice show, American Trip Talk, with host Gary Mance.
1: And we're going to do a Halloween show, some haunted places in Seattle and beyond. So stay tuned to AM 1150, Seattle's home of alternative talk, and make this the start of a great weekend, everyone.